I wouldn't want anyone to think that I was talking about the study of mathematics. Perhaps some of the boys and girls might hope that uh, I would preach against having to learn of such things, uh, for example, in school to learn about addition, but uh, that's certainly not my meaning this afternoon. After all, some kinds of addition are good and helpful, and some are not. Uh, For example, we need to know how to add and subtract when we go shopping. If you haven't uh, learned those things in school, then uh, you might struggle when you get a bit older to add up your bill as you walk through the supermarket. So there's a very uh, practical benefit from that there. But it is, on the other hand, uh, not good to add, for example, another helping of food on the plate when you're already bursting at the seams. So some addition good, some not so good. Now, what the point we're trying to make here is that it is not good, one of those things that is not good when it comes to addition is to try and add to God's word. And that is a truth that is tied up with the teaching on the sufficiency of Scripture, the theme of this particular article in the Westminster Confession. The definition of that, of the sufficiency of Scripture, is given in the first three lines or so of that article, but I'm just going to summarise it in this way, to say that the sufficiency of Scripture is making a point that everything that God wants us to know and that we need to know about glorifying God, about salvation, faith, doctrine and life is wholly revealed in the Bible. And that's also something that's implied in our text, which we look at under two headings. First of all, the nature of God's Word, and secondly, the problem with adding to it. The nature of the Word and why it's wrong to add to it. In the first place, then, Agur states that every word of God is tested. And that word tested here is a word that means refined. It's a word that comes out of the ancient practice and also it's a modern one, of smelting, taking an ore and uh, putting it under heat uh, in order to extract some metal, for example, out of it, so that you end up with the pure metal uh, rather than having the ore in which the, the uh, metal, the uh, element is, is locked into the chemical compounds in, in the rocks. And the thing that said there that apply, that's applied to the scripture in this way to say that God's word, it means that God's word itself is pure, as pure as refined or tested gold. In fact, more so because it's really impossible to, uh, in the smelting process, it's really impossible to extract 100%. You can get close to it with some things, but you never get quite 100%. So I say that God's word is like that, but it's even more so 100% pure, 100% refined. It's pure solid gold, we might say, in contrast to all that humans add into the picture, which is impurity, ignorance, darkness, half-truths and lies. That's what, they're the things that come out of us. Thus, this word tested is one that has enormous implications for God's word. It implies that his word is flawless that his word is inerrant, a word that means that the Bible has no errors or mistakes in it. 
and that the Bible is infallible. A word means that the Bible uh, cannot fall, it cannot be mistaken, it cannot have errors. It cannot have them and it does not have them. There is no mixture in God's word, no alloy, no impurities, even though God used those limited and fallible men to receive inspiration and to speak and to write and to collate the Bible. What he inspired and revealed is perfect. And he then guarded the process by which that was all written down in the original language, in the original manuscripts. He guarded that so that it was exactly what he wants, no more and no less. So complete is all this that Agur could say that it is every word that is tested, not just some of it, but the whole lot, all of it, God's words. In fact, note plural here in this passage, the plural in verse 6, and the word every in verse 5, this, that what we find in the Bible, all of it is tested, even down to the individual words. Inerrancy and infallibility go right down to the individual words of the Bible in the original language with all their different word endings and the different forms of the verbs and the nouns and so on, all of those grammar details, all of that is exactly what God wants and flawless, inerrant and infallible in the original manuscripts. And uh, that, by the way, is also why you find in the Scripture sometimes arguments based on some other verse of Scripture, as the Apostle Paul does uh, when he argues in Galatians about the word seed, referring to Christ as prophesying the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And words, arguments are based on earlier Scripture that involve even the little word endings on some of those older parts of the Bible because that has authority, and whole arguments can therefore be based on it, arguments that hold water, because it's all inerrant and infallible. Inspiration reaches down to the jot and tittle, the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's, as we might put it today. We therefore do not say that the Bible contains the Word of God, as some have said. We say that the Bible is the Word of God meaning that it is entirely so, even down to each individual word. And uh, we could think of other verses that say the same as what is implied here. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, much the same idea. All Scripture, not part of it, not that it just contains the Word of God, but all Scripture is breathed out by God, which is how uh, it's translated here as uh, the word inspired, but that's what it literally says All scripture, all the written word, all the written words are breathed out by God. Second thing that Agur states is that God himself is a shield to those who seek refuge in him. And I want to note this, that uh, this is not some random shift of topic here from the nature of God's word and then shifting to the character of God himself. No, in the context, this statement about God being a shield is related to what has just been said about the flawless word, the tested, purified word of God. For both of those statements are made so that we recognize 
the total reliability of both God and his word together. Think then about what a shield is for. Um, As you would know, a shield is largely for protection in battle, especially in battle, though uh, sometimes it's also used uh, partially as a weapon, can be used that way, and um, in that respect, the the armour of God uh, uses some of those items of weaponry and armour mentioned there as being, they could be either offensive or defensive, a sword, you can use it to defend yourself or you can use it to attack, a shield, you can use it to defend yourself or to attack, Uh, so there is sometimes that dual purpose, but we're most familiar with the idea of a shield being used for protection. But if you take a shield that is flawed or cracked or made of weak materials, then when you take such a thing into battle, asking for trouble. God is our perfect shield because he is infinitely powerful, infinitely wise and perfectly reliable and faithful. And that is seen above all in the sending of his son to deliver us and to protect us from Satan, sin and death, which he does with perfect reliability. There is no uh, hole in the work of the Lord Jesus, no gap or flaw that allows those forces against us, Satan, sin and death, to come in and destroy us uh, because the work of the Lord Jesus Christ somehow was not quite good enough, not quite sufficient. So the, the reliability of God's protection for his people is seen first and foremost in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can trust him, therefore, 100%. We can trust him as our saviour as well as our Lord. And that implies also that we must be able to fully trust his word. Because if you can't trust a person's words, you can't trust the person themselves. That's how we know people are dishonest very often, because we see that contradiction in the words they speak or between their words and their behaviour. But we can fully trust both the Lord Jesus Christ and his word of salvation because he uses his word and he has designed it that way to express and tell us about his infinitely powerful and wise and ability and his faithfulness as opposed to all that is flawed and, and cracked and weak and erroneous. God is our perfect shield. And therefore, his word also is a perfect shield to us. It must be if he's going to use that shield in order to um, bring us protection. If he's going to use his word to bring us, as part of the way he brings us that protection, won by the Lord Jesus Christ, then that must be so. But this not only has implications for the inerrancy of the shield work of God's word, it is, in other words, it's not weak and it's not flawed, but it also has implications for its sufficiency. After all, a shield needs to give adequate coverage. It needs to give adequate protection in battle. Uh, medieval soldiers had all different sizes of shields and sometimes they had very small ones, especially when they were working in uh, close combat. They had small bucklers, and those bucklers could be 
around about that size, just a uh, few centimetres in diameter. And uh, they could carry those easily in close in close-up combat. But if you're being fired at by at missiles, by arrows, then a buckler is virtually no protection at all because it's too small. And the reason I say this is because the devil is constantly firing fiery darts at us. And we need to have that proper and adequate protection. Uh, Something small like that is not going to give us that kind of protection. It needs to be sufficient to that task. And since the devil fires that fire, those fiery darts at us in every single area of our lives, it doesn't matter what it is we're doing, whether you're at work, whether you're on holidays, whether you're watching TV, those fiery darts are always coming. And they are trying to strike us at every level of who we are. They're trying to strike us at the level of what we think, our minds, at our soul, at our body, at our motives, at our desires. And therefore, the coverage that we need is an all-of-life coverage. And the scripture indeed has that all-of-life coverage with its world and life view that it presents, uh, teaching us how to live for the Lord Jesus in every area of life. It is not a shield that is too small or has bits missing. That would be inadequate. And the doctrine of sufficiency is just this, that the Word of God is that completely adequate shield for every single area of life. doesn't matter what it is we're doing or studying, including mathematics and English and whatever else, languages, whatever else it is you're studying and whatever it is you're doing, The doctrine of sufficiency is this, that the word of God is fully adequate. All things necessary, as the Westminster puts it. All things necessary for God's glory, for man's salvation, for faith, and for life. Life, there's that all of life idea. All things necessary for worship, so we know how to worship God. All things necessary for obedience, so that we know how to obey God during the week. All things necessary for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In fact, for every good work, every good work that there is that we could do. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And that, by the way, uh, that verse from 2 Timothy is the the one that you'll find uh, most uh, theology books talking about the sufficiency of Scripture will give you 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 as the great proof text for this doctrine. We need shielding. We need armour. We can put it in terms of the armour of God. We need armour and we need weapons in each of these areas of life or the darts of the devil will get us. And God has given us that sufficient protection and a sufficient sword for all of that with his word. Now, this does not mean that everything is equally spelled out in the same way, in such a way that all the details are given explicitly. For example, by explicit commands. It doesn't mean that everything God wants you to do during the week is listed in detail with a specific command. 
The Westminster in this article points out that there are some things that are expressly set down. There are specific commands. Uh, but there are also other things that need to be derived, doctrines included, by good and necessary consequence. That is to say, taking the basic principles and truths and correctly inferring other things from them. Uh, For example, we take all of the truth that's revealed that we can find in the Bible about the three persons of the Trinity and then from that we put it together and with some inference we develop a a full-orb doctrine of the Trinity as we find it summed up in our confessions. Or another example, the Bible doesn't directly address some of the issues that come out of modern science and technology. Is human cloning okay? What about surrogate parents? Well, the Bible doesn't address those things directly, but it does give us sufficient ethical principles that we can come up with the answers we need to all of these questions as well as showing us uh, what is indifferent. Uh, An indifferent matter is where God is pleased by more than one way of doing things, more than one option. And so we can work that out from the basic principles with God's help. The doctrine of sufficiency also does not deny our need to apply his word. And for that work of applying God's word, we surely need the help of his Holy Spirit to give us understanding of the basic principles and uh, to give us that inward illumination of his word, as the Westminster puts it in this article. We need the work of the Spirit to enable us to make correct applications. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to put a desire into us that we actually implement the answers that we have found so that we end up uh, applying the principles for example, to details of church government or details of worship, the two instances that are referred to here in this article, where, to be honest, there are a lot of indifferent matters. In uh, church government and in worship, there are a lot of things where there's more than one option. You can talk about and you can make a decision about what time you're going to have your worship service, those kind of details. Uh, How long should a worship service be? In what order should we arrange the various elements of worship? Or in the case of uh, church uh, office, how long should an official term be for an elder or a deacon? Those kind of questions are things that can... There may be more than one answer to those, those questions. But the bottom line, according to the Westminster, is that all of that has to be in line and according to the general rules of God's Word. Where those general rules allow more than one option, then we may apply sanctified common sense, prudence and practicality very often. Maybe we say, well, we could have a service at this time or this time, but we'll choose this one because if we do it that way, there's going to be some practical problems. Maybe... uh, Mothers with little children won't be able to come if we do it at this time. Practicalities can come into it as long as both options are okay as far as God's word is concerned with the general principles of his word. 
And we can even learn certain things from the people of the world in terms of those practicalities. We can look at how other societies organise themselves, uh, some of the way that they run their meetings and so on. And we can learn and apply some of those things as long as these are options that the Word of God gives us with its general principles. So none of this alters the fact that the Word of God is fully sufficient to guide us in all that God has set it to do according to His purposes. His purpose is not to give us a manual telling us how to perform brain surgery or how to send a a manned mission to Mars or anything of that kind. His purpose is to give us all we need to know to deal with every area of life in a way that is honouring to God and for our good as well. A shield that gives perfect coverage for all the fiery darts, but to be sure, a shield that has to be used and wielded and applied with the Lord's help. Now, Agur goes on to warn against adding to his words, to God's words. And note again the plural. It is not just a matter of saying we will not add to God's word, but we will not add to his words. In other words, not adding to his word in the slightest little bit, not even a single word should be added. Second and final point, the problem with adding to it. Two reasons are given here for not adding. One of them is implied and the other one is stated. The implied one, because the Bible is already refined and pure. It is already fully adequate as a shield. It is sufficient. And if we would add anything to it from some other source, which would be a a human source, something impure, the pure gold would be adulterated and the shield would be weakened. And if we add anything from another source, it implies that the word of God is not actually, was not actually sufficient in the first place and that in some way it needs improvement. And that is, of course, an insult by implication to the Lord's wisdom and provision and what he has actually said about his word in the Bible. And because that is an implicit insult to him, the second reason that is stated as to why we should not add to the Bible is that if you do, we are told the Lord will reprove you and you will be found to be the one who is deficient. It won't be the word of God that's deficient, it will be you who will be found to be deficient, even in fact, as it's said here, to be found to be a liar which in this case means that if you come and you say, I have something to add to God's word and God is pleased and God has given it to me to add to this word, then that's a lie because he's already said it's finished. It's sufficient and nothing more should be added. And it's because of the the seriousness of this that um, the very serious penalties were given for such things in the Old Testament, even the death penalty for a false prophet, for someone who came along and said, God has told me that this is what he wants you to do or not do. And if he adds to the scripture, if it's a false prophecy, he's adding to the scripture, then he is to be put to death. 
Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. And this is not an isolated thing. The death penalty might be uh, an Old Testament matter, but the seriousness of this is not an isolated thing. This is not an isolated warning in Scripture. This is one that we find right through, running right through from the time of the fall to the very last page of the last book of the New Testament. Give you some examples. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Do not add to or subtract from the Lord's commands. Galatians 1, verse 8. Anyone, even if that should be an angel, who would preach a gospel other than the one that the apostles were proclaiming, which is the one that came out of God's word, then that person would be accursed. And Revelation 22, as we read, addition or subtraction means that God will take away that person's part of the tree of life and the holy city. It is a very very serious thing to add to the word as if it were not sufficient or to take away from it, making it, as it were, deficient. So how do people try and do this? How, through history, has this been attempted? Well, the Westminster Confession in this article has in mind at least two ways that this sometimes happens. One of those is the Neo-Pentecostal way, which is clearly in view here, the idea of ongoing revelation, ongoing prophecy. And that is indicated in the article by the words, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit. That's especially addressing that concern of Pentecostalism. And the other big way that this has been done in history or attempted in history is in Roman Catholicism. And that's referred to in the article by, uh, or by uh, traditions of men, in other words, uh, invented by popes or church councils or the like, uh, whether uh, doctrines or church practices, both of which have been added in many occasions throughout history in the uh, medieval church and even into more modern times, and uh, some of which are uh, flatly contradictory to biblical principles others of which are simply not mentioned or condoned in the Bible and um, therefore are also additions. Uh, So those are the things that the Westminster has chiefly in view here, but it is important that we be aware of uh, things that we ourselves might be inclined to do. It it is important to recognise what others do that ought not to be done, but uh, let's also consider our own Selves and our own dangers, what we face. And uh, we're not immune to this danger of adding to the Scripture. Uh, though we would say we don't do that, we would say we can't do that, you must not add to Scripture, but we're not immune from the danger of doing so in effect. And one of the ways that that can happen, also in Reformed churches, is to take an indifferent matter and make one of the options that are equally permitted and approved by the Lord to take one of those and to use that to try and bind consciences. Uh, Or similar to that, inventing some kind of new scruple, um, something that we have effectively added to Scripture. For example, if we would say uh, we all have to become vegetarian, where the Scripture clearly teaches that that there is an option there. Uh, You can eat 
only vegetables if you want, or you can eat meat. But if you would say, no, uh, Scripture really means that you're not allowed to eat meat, you have to eat only vegetables, then and try and bind that on others, then that would be taking a personal scruple and trying to make it into a law. And to do so would be to add to the Scripture. This is the danger of legalism. And it's a danger of which the Pharisees were prime examples in the Scripture. As we read it in the Scripture, they had hundreds of these additions that they invented. But it's something also that we need to be aware of for ourselves because we're not totally immune from those those dangers. And then the the other area I want to suggest that we think about is is this, that uh, we are those people who say that Scripture is sufficient. In fact, we confess it that Scripture is sufficient for teaching us everything we need to know about faith and practice, doctrine and life in absolutely every area of life. And so we say that and we tell others that and people from other denominations maybe, we try and explain that and sometimes point out where they're going wrong in this. But what does it mean if we do all of that and then neglect to use the Word of God as sufficient to guide us in particular areas of life? Is that then a real commitment to the truth of biblical sufficiency if we only speak about this all-encompassing guidance and then don't act on it? If I have a, a perfect meal in front of me and I extol its virtues to others as a, a complete and balanced meal, here is, the, here is the ideal kind of diet for you to, to enjoy and to eat and uh, it's something that's so full of nutrition and it's just what I need and it's just what you need to lead a healthy life, but then when it comes down to it, all I do is to pick at it. A little bit here, a little bit there. Maybe I'm really thinking of pizza or something like that. And uh, so I'm just picking at what I've been extolling as the most wonderful and perfect and balanced meal in the whole world, but I'm actually not really demonstrating that I believe that. And that's again a problem that we all face. Let us keep in mind that the Bible is the sufficient word of the sufficient Christ. And it is, it is wholly from and about him and his work. And if we want to give a credible witness to the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus, we also need to give a credible witness to the sufficiency of his words demonstrating that we look to his word in every area of life and that we see that word as a reliable guide because we see him as our all-sufficient Lord and Saviour. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, though we may not be tempted to add to your word by new revelations or unbiblical doctrines invented by the church councils or leaders. Yet, Father, we know how easy it is to fall into legalism, demanding that others follow personal scruples that we have, and how easy it is to neglect the guidance of your word, seeking other creaturely guides, even while claiming that your word is the only perfect and fully adequate and necessary guide in all of life. Father, we pray that you would show to us our own failings in such things and help us to look more to to your word in all things, even as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We pray it in his name. Amen. Jehovah's word is uh, perfect, as Psalm 19 declares, and that's another word that implies that it is sufficient. From the red book number 19, Psalm 19, stanzas 1 and 4 to 6, we'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology, number 19, stanzas 1 and 4 to 6. After the blessing is our doxology, again from the Red Book, number 150, stanzas 1 and 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs> 